Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. Everybody, would you just stand uh, with me, actually, one more time? We're going to read this declaration, this revelation declaration. I kind of like, you got to stand because you sort of have to put some, some umph into it. And the, the, really, the, my desire is that, you know, this will put some high octane into our souls. And like we said, the title of our study in Revelation is Back in the Fight. And um, that's just really what this is all about, what the Lord's doing in us. So... You know, uh, we've typically been memorizing scriptures together. I know like when we did Leviticus, we memorized Leviticus 26, 12, and so forth. This is like every line of this is taken from scripture directly. So if we end up memorizing this through the course of our study, you'll have like segments of like 20 different Bible verses memorized. So that's pretty cool. So let's just start with this. Can you put it up on the screen for us there? And let's uh, read this together, okay, out loud. The time is near. The hour has come. Stay awake. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a trumpet call. Because he wins, we win. Why? We are his pure, spotless bride. We are his holy family. All that he does, he does for us with fire in his eyes. Therefore, we will... Next slide there. Therefore... Oh, oh man, that kills the momentum. Okay. Therefore, we will overcome. We will do more than conquer. We stand on Jesus as our rock. We stand with Jesus as our advocate. We stand by Jesus as our brother. We stand in Jesus as our hiding place. Our present failures are not final. We will be victorious. We will fully give ourselves to the Lord's work. Our troubles are momentary. Our death has no sting. Our home is forever. Our Jesus is coming soon. And the time is near. And all God's people said, Hoorah! Okay, you can be seated. That's great. Yes, man. Last week, you know, we uh, started this study in Revelation, and we talked about how some of the, many of the fantastic images in Revelation are written by the Apostle John to be memorable and not so much mysterious. Now, when I said that, I just wanted to give you a caveat. I'm following up with last week because we got a, a couple of comments last week. When I said that last week, I did not at all mean uh, to undermine the veracity of Scripture. So let me be super clear. The book of Revelation is divinely inspired scripture, and it is the perfect word of God. Amen? So I'm in no way, shape, or form undermining that. When I say that John is using images to convey a message uh, or to make his message more memorable, I'm not at all saying that he did that without God. Okay? John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. However, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit somehow magically took over John's hand and he's, you know, doing one of these things. Not at all. John's fully cognizant 
of what he's writing. Um, John is seeing and he's hearing from God, but he's expressing it in language that he and his audience can understand. Part of the joy of studying Scripture, one of the funnest parts to me about studying the Bible is, is trying the best that I can to get back to the original context. You know, because it's there that we can better discern the heart of God towards us. You know, I don't want to read Revelation as a Westerner living in 2022, though I know it's really hard to not do that because, let's face it, that's what we are. However, we want to do the best we can to try to read this thing in the way that the first audience did like one of those first century Christians in one of those seven churches that John was writing to. So what it meant to them is what it needs to mean to you and me. And we're, we'll apply it differently, of course, because we live in a different context. But the truth is still the same, and it has to be maintained. And so that's why we need to understand that. And that's why we need to keep all four legs. Remember last Sunday we talked about the four legs of the chair, like four ways to approach the book of Revelation. And we want to keep all four of those legs in mind as we study. Otherwise, we're going to get wonky. So here's the, the four legs that we're looking at Revelation. We're looking at it, first of all, by its theme. It, it's written, it, the, theme of Exodus, the theme of Revelation is the Exodus, God is getting us out of here. He's working to set his people free. That's the theme of Revelation. The, the second leg is we have to look at it uh, by its, you know, literarily. Literarily speaking, it is written in the apocalyptic genre. We talked about that last week. And that, because it's written in that genre, John followed certain uh, rules, if you will, you know, to adhere to that genre which doesn't make it any less inspired scripture. It's just John's writing in a way that his audience can remember. Does that make sense? And then the third thing we want to look at, the third leg of the chair, so to speak, is that it's a personal letter, that this literally has a historical context. Like, John's a real guy living in a real circumstance, writing to real Christians in these seven churches, and they, as we learned last week, they really are being persecuted they really are under the heat and the gun, right? And so, so he's writing with that heart to these people, and that influences this letter. And, and so what it meant to them, it needs to mean to us. And then the fourth leg of the chair is that it's prophecy. It is the Word of God. And so the question for us is, what's God saying to us through this book? That's a very important question. So when we're studying Revelation, you want to keep all four of those legs in mind at the same time. So, so, but at some times, of course, we're going to maybe talk about you know, how it's an image and what it means. And other times we're going to talk about you know, the Word of God. And other times we might just look at the historical context. But we're going to keep all four of those in mind as we're studying this book. Does that make sense? And when we do that, it'll keep us from getting wonky. It'll keep us from missing the heart of God. Because you agree, I, I, here's one of the, my passions about this book is this. I feel like the devil has done to the book of Revelation what he did to Leviticus. Do you remember how last year you were, you were like, some of you were groaning about our study in Leviticus. You think, no way, we're not going to do Leviticus. That's just the worst book ever in the whole Bible, right? And yet, and yet, you know, when we went through it, you're like, wow, that, 
That's actually a really rich book, isn't it? It's, there's really good stuff in Leviticus. The, same, the devil's done the same thing to Revelation. I think he's stolen it from us. He's got us so wrapped up in conspiracy theories that we miss the heart of God in this book. I mean, you think about it. I mean, all I've known about the book of Revelation are those silly movies I watched as a kid. You know, you've heard me joke, every New Year's Eve I got saved because every New Year's Eve my church had a watch night service and we played those movies, A Distant Thunder, and I was like, I don't want to get left behind. Oh, no, I'm going to get saved with the weird guys in the helmets and the heads chopped off and the stuff. You're like, that's not in Revelation, you know? So, so he's kind of stolen it from us. So I, I want to just throw that stuff aside and just come at this book like with a fresh heart, the heart of a student, to really understand it. And I believe that God has got something for us in it. Don't you? So that's where we're at. Now, with all the cool images and all of the weird pictures that we see in Revelation, there is one person for whom John simply cannot find enough words to describe. Like John literally runs out of language to accurately tell us what he sees when he sees Jesus. This is our first snapshot. Now, I say Revelation, we're calling these snapshots because it's kind of like Revelation is built around these pictures, these snapshots. And they're sort of like selfies because John is in each picture. So it's sort of like almost John goes, okay, here's a picture of me in front of the throne. And here's a picture of me in front of the final judgment. And here's a picture of me in front of the final battle. See, and he's in every picture. He's not, the, he's not the star of the picture, but he's in the picture. And he's showing us what he sees. And so this first snapshot, what's the first thing John sees is, here's me with Jesus. And Jesus blows John's mind away. He cannot describe what he sees when he sees Jesus. And you say, that ought to be easy. Jesus was a man after all, wasn't he? And if I was going to describe a man, I would say, well, six foot two, brown hair, brown eyes, slightly chunky, you know, got a, you'd find some sort of uh, distinguishing factor, like he wears glasses or he's got a mole on his cheek or a tattoo or he's missing a finger or something like that. You find something that would describe the person. And yet, when Jesus walked the earth as God in the flesh, John could do that. Jesus had a certain build, certain hair color, eye color. His voice had a certain sound, just like you and I do. But in Revelation, John sees Jesus as he really is, God. God, the second person in the Trinity. And he absolutely doesn't know what to say. And in fact, there are at least 29 different descriptions that John gives for Jesus in, in this book 29 different names or descriptions, and, and even that falls short. So I, I broke it into two lists for us, and I'm just going to fly through them because I think it's important for you to see how through the whole book, John's just struggling. He's like, 
He's this. Well, he's this. He's this. He's this. He's this. And he's this. And he's this. He's this. He can't find enough words to tell you about Jesus. So here's the list. This is who he is. First of all, this is his names. Let's look at his names first. His names are him who is and who was and who is to come. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of earth. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the living one, was dead and is forever alive. He's the lamb. He's faithful and true. He's the word of God. He's beginning and end. He's the root and offspring of David. He's the bright and morning star. Those are just the names. And then John starts to describe what he sees. He describes Jesus as having a voice like a trumpet. He looks like a son of man. He's dressed in a robe with a golden sash, his hair as white as wool, eyes like blazing fire, his feet glow like burning bronze. He's got a voice that sounds like many rushing waters. He holds seven stars in his right hand. He's got a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. His face shines like the sun. He holds the keys. I got the keys to death and Hades. This, he, he, he has a, he is crowned, he has a mysterious name written on him. He's crowned with many crowns. His robe is dipped in blood. He has a tattoo on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. He rides a white horse. He leads the armies of heaven. You get the feeling that Jesus is undiluted power and glory unmitigated majesty. Like, you think meeting Tom Brady or somebody else famous would be cool? Sure. Meeting Jesus? Terrifying. Terrifying. It makes sense that Jesus is the first thing that John sees in Revelation. After all, seeing Jesus is the first step to leaving the pain of this world behind. And remember who John is talking to, persecuted Christians. How do I get a perspective on the pain that I'm in unless I see Jesus? See, seeing him gives me a perspective of what I'm going through. Does that make sense? Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I got this, Jesus says. So it makes sense that John, in writing a letter to persecuted Christ followers, would see him first. Seeing Jesus puts the pain of this present world in proper perspective. Fear, worry, anxiety, they come on us when the world feels bigger than Jesus. Through his writing, John is trying to bring us into an encounter where Jesus dominates the landscape. You know, like, we kind of have this problem, friends, We've got this pocket-sized God, and we have these God-sized problems. That needs to be reversed. And this is what he does in Revelation. He shows us Jesus for all that he is, and he is more than that. <laughs> He's infinite. It kind of reminds me of that song, you know, that old song. Maybe you just sing it with me, Kenny. Let's hear it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Yeah. 
And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Yes. Lord, I pray that the things of this earth grow strangely dim to us this morning in the light of your glory and grace, Jesus. Open up the heavens, open up our eyes that we see you, Jesus, for who you are and as you are. So we humbly bow before you, Jesus, and we come and we invite you, Jesus, today. Blow our minds like you did, John. Thank you, Lord, we pray. So with that, we turn to Revelation chapter 1. Let's see what John sees, okay? Revelation chapter 1, I'll start with verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, when he says he's on the island of Patmos, he's not on vacation. See, he's not like got this nice beachfront condo, you know, with iced tea. That's not what he's talking about. He's on the island of Patmos. It's, it's a work camp. It's a Roman work camp. It's a stone quarry. He's, he's quarrying stones to build the Roman aqueducts. And it's a death camp. You understand that. That's the whole point. Is you send them there, you work them to death, and if they survive, well, lucky them. Lucky them. <laughs> but this is what John's doing. And he's there because he says of the testimony of Jesus. He didn't break any laws. He loves Jesus. And that's a threat to the Caesar, and he sent John to the island of Patmos. So this is where he's at. And he's there, notice the words he uses, suffering, a companion in the suffering, and a companion in the kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Okay. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll look at that next week. He said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. 
Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So now right away there in verse 20, we get a really important clue about understanding Revelation, don't we? He tells us that the images that we see are symbolic. They're figurative because he defines for us what they are, doesn't he? He says, now, you know those seven lampstands you saw and those seven stars? Here's what those mean. The seven lampstands, those are the seven churches. And the seven stars, those are the angels of those seven churches, which brings up something cool. Is it possible that New River Church has an angel? I think so. Why wouldn't God assign angels to each local church? We are as people, and angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to God's people. So why wouldn't we have an angel assigned to us, New River Church? I think it's kind of cool. And would you look at Jesus? Look at Jesus. Notice that John does not give us a straight description of Jesus. Like I said, he's this tall, he weighs this much, this color hair. He, in fact, he does more than that. He tells us what, how Jesus makes him feel. He doesn't just tell us what Jesus looks like. He also tells us how Jesus made him feel. Verse 10, Jesus grabs John's attention right away with a voice that sounds like a trumpet. Now, what that means is that Jesus' voice is commanding. Think about it. If right now, all of a sudden, we hear a trumpet blast go off in our building somewhere, I guarantee you that I've lost all of your attention. You're now thinking about that trumpet, and where is it, and why is it being blown, and who's blowing it. The trumpet commands your attention, and this is the voice of Jesus. Jesus' voice demands attention. And right away, you're tipped off to the fact that this Jesus looks very different than the sweet little six-pound baby, six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus on Christmas morning. You know, silent night. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. You know, but little Lord Jesus, no crying. He makes... No. Boom! Jesus steps on the scene and he gets your attention right away. The voice like a trumpet. So John turns around to see the voice, doesn't he? And as he turns around, what he sees absolutely steals his breath away. First, he sees seven golden lampstands which we learn from verse 20, they're the seven churches to whom John is writing. But more than that, we can also safely say that the number seven is symbolic in Scripture. We know that. That's very well known, commonly accepted. Seven means completion. It means whole in Scripture. It means the whole thing. So, so these seven churches are representative of the whole church, including you and me. And so here's these seven lampstands, the church, and you notice that Jesus, one like a son of man, right, is walking among the lampstands. So Jesus is identifying himself with his church. Isn't that something? 
He's actually with us. Friends, the church is not Jesus' weekend project. The church is his bride. He is permanently connected himself to us. That means that if we're having a bad day, he's with us in the bad day. He's walking among the lampstands, and Jesus is dressed in a long robe, and he has a golden sash around his chest, which points to his royalty. He is the king, and he has hair that's white like wool, as white as snow, which doesn't mean that Jesus was old. It means that what's John's way of connecting Jesus back to the description of the Ancient of Days found in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9, he speaks of the Ancient of Days having white like wool, white hair like wool. The Ancient of Days was the biblical way of speaking about God, about God being eternal. He's the Ancient of Days. He's timeless. And so here John is saying that Jesus is the Ancient of Days, which is saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. He's timeless. When John saw Jesus, he did not see his old friend from back when they hung out together on earth, when he was one of the 12 disciples and they roamed around Palestine. Jesus did not see that old friend. No, he saw Jesus and he saw God. Jesus is God. And those eyes, they're like blazing fire. They burn right through you. They pierce your soul. They, they, his, the intensity. You know, have you ever had a friend who's intense? Jesus is intense. His eyes blaze like fire. Je Jesus, uh, you're making me uncomfortable. You're making me nervous, Jesus. You're staring so intently at me. Eyes like blazing fire in his feet are like burning bronze, he says, which is a connection to the brazen altar in the Jewish temple. This altar was made of bronze. And it's the altar in the temple where animals were sacrificed to pay for people's sins, to atone for sin. And to say that Jesus' feet look like this brazen burning altar because Jesus came to earth, he walked this earth to atone for the sins of mankind. Jesus is that burning altar, and he is the burning sacrifice, paying for the sins of humanity. And now John sees it, like suddenly John sees the purpose for why Jesus came to earth. Oh, you paid for the sins of humanity. It's crystal clear. Jesus is on fire, burning for our sins, as it were. And then when Jesus speaks again in verse 15, it doesn't sound like a trumpet anymore, does it? It sounds like the sound of many rushing waters. You say, so which is it? Does it sound like a trumpet or does it sound like rushing waters? John would say, well, it's both, actually, both. His voice is like a trumpet. It's commanding. You can't ignore it. But his voice is also like the sound of rushing waters because it's awesome. It's overwhelming. It drowns out all other voices. There's this roar in his voice. And in his right hand, he holds these seven stars. And verse 20 tells us that these seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And they're in his right hand, which means he commands these angels. 
So who is this Jesus that he commands angels? He is, who is he? He is God. He is God. And out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is like a double-edged sword. And this is how John, catch this, experiences the speaking of Jesus. Jesus speaks, and every word cuts him to the quick. Jesus speaks, and John's heart is just cut, sliced open. It's like, Jesus, that hurts. Jesus, your word, your word cuts out the things that don't belong, and it leaves the things that remain. Jesus, ow, 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 Jesus, ow, your word. Lord, it's, it's cutting. Yes, I know. It's cutting. Yes, I know. His word is truth. And it cuts out everything that's not truth. And it hurts, John says. It hurts. Yes, that's correct. We are no longer in the presence of sweet little baby Jesus. No crying he makes. We are now face-to-face with the eternal God of the universe, and we had better listen. John falls on his face flat, collapses to the ground, and I love this part. Jesus reaches out his right hand. You see that? And he puts it on John, and he goes, don't be afraid. Like, like how could you not be afraid, <laughs> right? Like, oh, it's Okay. Wow. You know what's ironic? What's ironic is this. So many people live our lives without the fear of God. We we live our little lives, we run our little worlds, almost daring God to make us afraid of Him. Meanwhile, we fear everything else. We know what it is to be afraid. We know what it is to be afraid of COVID. Don't lie. You know you've experienced it. We know what it is to be afraid of the government, to be afraid of losing our rights. You know what it is to be afraid of your kids getting screwed up by the educational system. We know what it is to fear losing our money, our comfort, our future. We know what it is to fear those things. We don't know what it is to fear the living God. We don't fear the one who truly ought to receive our fear. We've shrunk God so that he fits in our little pocket, and we have this pocket-sized God, but then we've magnified our problems and our hang-ups so that they're all that we see. I like how John Bevere put it. John Bevere is a Christian author, speaker, really has a lot of great stuff. He said this. He said, the one who fears God fears nothing else. Because the fear of God puts everything else in its proper perspective. Listen, I love the fact and I cherish the fact that Jesus is my friend. Like, there is few truths that are more precious to me than that. However, I do not want to enjoy this friendship so much that I forget who he is. 
and I lose the fear of him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says. See? So after telling us what John saw, John tells us then what Jesus said to him. And Jesus introduces himself. Kind of cool. Introduces himself. He goes, oh, I'm the living one. Oh, okay. He goes, yeah, and, and I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forevermore. Uh, my Bible, one of my Bibles uses the word behold. Maybe yours says, behold, I'm alive forevermore. Whenever you see that word behold or the now look, okay, it's used five times in the book of Revelation, and it's meant to get your attention. The Greek word that John wrote originally is the word iodi, and it means literally, wake up! It's used five times. So Jesus goes, behold, now look. He's going, wake up. I'm alive forever and ever. See, that's what he's saying. That's how he reads it. This makes Jesus, remember one of the names that he has in Revelation is the firstborn from among the dead. That's what makes Jesus the firstborn from among the dead. He's alive forevermore. You know, there are other people that came back to life again, like Jesus. I mean, he raised Lazarus from the dead, raised a, a boy from the dead. I mean, there's other people that have been raised from the dead before, but you notice they all died eventually. And even nowadays, I mean, there are stories of miracles, people coming back from the dead. Praise God, they all die. Jesus is the first and so far the only to have risen from the dead and to remain alive. That makes him the firstborn from among the dead. But to be the firstborn means there are others coming. And this, my friend, is the promise that we have as his family, as those who have placed our trust in him, our faith in him as our Savior, is that we will rise again in the same way that he has risen again. See this? And so this is Jesus. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Wake up! I'm alive! He's not dead. He's not dead. Now, there's one more picture of Jesus that we find in Revelation, and I just want to wrap this up with this. Revelation 19. If you go over to the near the end of the book, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we'll just look at this quickly, but this is powerful. Buckle up. This one gets even more intense. Ready? Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. There's those eyes again. And on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, there's the robe, dipped in blood this time. His robe is dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. There's that sword again. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them 
with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in this vision, John sees somehow Earth's atmosphere parting and heaven opening up, perhaps like a, a curtain. I don't know. Something. This realm and that realm peels back. And the first thing that John sees is a white horse. That caught my eye. It's like you didn't see Jesus first, or he saw the horse first. Why does he see the horse first? This is about perspective. So imagine, you know, just picture you've been there perhaps. You go to New York City. You're standing on the street in New York City on a sidewalk, and you're standing facing one of the big skyscrapers. And, you know, when you're standing there on street level, all you see is the, you know, the window in front of you. But then you crane your neck back, 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 back to look at the top of the building, and you become smaller and smaller and smaller, don't you? The, the, build, the perspective, you know, the, the building just dwarfs you in its presence, doesn't it? And I think this is John's experience as he sees this white horse. The heavens peel back. The first thing he sees is the lay of the horse. And he's like, up, up, following the shoulder line. Whoa. And then he sees the rider. Oh, the rider is faithful and true. That's Jesus, see? Jesus is clearly a victorious general. Generals rode white horses. He's a conqueror in this picture. Jesus is a conqueror, and he's coming with vengeance, it says. And notice something else, that in this text, Jesus doesn't say a word, which almost makes him more intimidating. Wouldn't you agree? He just shows up, man. And all, I, can't, you know, I can't even do it. It's not even justice. <laughs> But Jesus just shows up, right? You're with me. I mean, like, this is not doing it. But he shows up, right? And, and, and he doesn't say a word. It's like his presence says everything he needs to say. Says everything he needs to say. As a conquering general, Jesus is the judge. Who does he judge? He judges his enemies. There's this blazing fire in his eyes again. There's that piercing and cutting of his sword-like words. There's the purity of his white horse and the purity of his white robe. But wait a second, his robe is stained. What is that? It's not like Jesus spilled something on himself. No, this is intentional. It's a robe dipped in blood. Dipped in. So it's that robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? What is this? It means this. The robe dipped in blood justifies the wrath of the one who wears it. It's dipped in his blood. And this gives Jesus the legal right to execute vengeance on those who rejected and scorned his sacrifice at the cross. The robe dipped in blood gives Jesus the legal right to execute vengeance on those who rejected his free gift from the cross. This is his blood. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it speaks about the wrath of God coming on those who scorn the blood of Jesus. 
This robe dipped in blood says to the enemies of Jesus, it says essentially, you had your chance. I, I demonstrated my love. I, I poured out my very best for you. And you rejected it. You scorned it. So be prepared to receive my wrath. Those who scorn his blood will be scorned by him. It's, it's a picture that is sung about, actually, in Psalms chapter 2. And, oh, I know we're late, but we got Psalms chapter 2, I'll read it quick. But here's this psalm. It's an ancient song. And a lot of people, it's, it was a coronation song sung when a king was crowned king, but it also has, has pretty solid messianic undertones to it. You can see it's a picture of Jesus for sure. So here's, here it says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. In other words, God, we don't want you. The one enthroned in heaven, how does he respond? He laughs. God laughs. Look, the Lord scoffs at his enemies. Is that uncomfortable for you to think that God would scoff at his enemies? It's like, who are you? The God of the universe. You think you can come against him? In essence, right? He goes, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead, you, will lead to your destruction." For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Listen, there is a refuge in Jesus for those who humble themselves before him. But for those too proud, for those who scorn him, there's only wrath. The question is, will Jesus be your refuge or your wrath? The choice is up to you. You know the way Hollywood depicts Jesus as a soft-skinned, fruity white guy with blue eyes and wavy hair? This is not that. <laughs> the rider on this white horse is called faithful and true. Faithful means you can trust him. True means you can believe him. With justice, he judges and he wages war against those who rejected his invitation to be forgiven. This robe dipped in blood is essentially saying this. If the language of my love was not enough to get through to you, then perhaps my wrath will say something to you. See, if you can't hear his love, I say, it makes me wonder, like, what's wrong with us? You ever thought about that? What's wrong with us as humanity that we, that we can't hear the love of God? That we, that we just, we, 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 hear the, we hear His love, we see His sacrifice, 
And then we still reject it. We're like, yeah, I think I can still figure out my own way to heaven. I have my own faith. You have your faith, I have my faith. What's wrong with us that we do that? Given all that he's done for us. See? And he says, look, if my love is not what will get through, then you will hear my wrath. So you can ignore the language of love, but you can't ignore the language of wrath. And by rejecting the blood of Jesus, people make themselves enemies of his grace. So what's he saying to us? Okay. Hank, the message for us is this. Do not underestimate Jesus. Don't underestimate him. We underestimate him on both sides. You, Christ follower, you underestimate Jesus all the time. You underestimate his passionate, fiery love for you. You underestimate his undying commitment to you as your friend, as your savior, as your lover. You underestimate that all the time. Don't. Don't underestimate his passionate, zealous, fiery, committed love for you, follower of Christ. But on the other side, do not underestimate him. Do not underestimate him. His, if you've rejected his invitation for salvation, do not underestimate his ability to judge, condemn, and destroy your soul to hell for all of eternity. Do not underestimate Jesus. Does this make sense? Do you see Jesus? Has John showed us Jesus? Oh, yeah. Jesus is commanding and conquering. He's comforting and challenging. He is encouraging and evaluating. He's judging yet gentle. He's mysterious yet majestic, returning, restoring, receiving worship. He holds the keys to everything. He is, he was, he is to come. He is immovable, unshakable, unflappable, unstoppable. He leaves us with one clear choice. Join him or be crushed by him. Jesus does not mess around. So while on earth, you know, worship team, you can come. I'm sorry. So, you know, this side of heaven, this side of the grave, we feel like we have the luxury, and I say it in quotes, like I say it tongue-in-cheek, the luxury, if you will, of exploring our options. You notice how we do that? We just, we kind of, we treat it like, oh, I have the luxury of, you know, of, of waffling, I have the luxury of harboring my own doubts. I have the luxury of just, uh, you know, coming up with my own faith, right? But then the day will come when the heavens are opened, as John depicted, and Jesus appears on that white horse with heaven's armies at his side. In that moment, your options will vanish like a vapor. There are no options in that moment. Do you see that? And, and it's not like Jesus demands it. I'm saying his presence demands it. Who he is demands it. Does this make sense? It's not like Jesus is saying, no, you don't have any options. No. You, uh, you have to see it's who he is as God. You know, C.S. Lewis said this. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. He says, if, the, he says, if there is if there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is God, nothing else matters. It's one of my favorite quotes by him. 
If there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is God, nothing else matters. Because God, by very definition of who he is as God, demands to be all in all. And this is what John portrays for us with Jesus. The Jesus that you and I have come to love and to know so much because he became a man and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. Like that Jesus, the little baby Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas. We love that Jesus and he is wonderful and he is all that. But we don't ever, ever, ever want to forget that this Jesus, the little baby Jesus that we love so much, is God and he demands absolutely everything and when you see him there is simply no room for making up your own beliefs believe him or not he still is God so listen friends I can't bring a message like this and I know that we're late but I can't end this without giving us an opportunity to respond to him Will you receive the Alpha and Omega as your Lord and Savior? Or do you want to make certain that the Alpha and Omega is your Lord and Savior? Perhaps this morning you're thinking, you know, maybe, yeah, I have, uh, I've underestimated him. I think I've uh, turned Jesus into my image, you know, I've minimized him, I've fit him in my pocket. No wonder. No wonder I'm so afraid. No wonder I'm so worried. No wonder I'm so confused. I've made God this small. And today, you just want to repent from that and say, okay, God, no way. I want you to blow my mind, God, with who you are and bring me back to the place, Lord, where I have the fear of the Lord in my heart. And draw me to, you know, I know some of you recoil at that notion, the fear of the Lord. Listen, if we say the fear of the Lord. I'm not talking about like, like, like a scary movie. I'm not talking about that. The fear of the Lord is, is amazing. It's, it's got this, there's a sense of awe in the fear of the Lord, isn't there? And it's attractive. Like it doesn't drive me from him. It draws me to him. He's so awesome. He leaves me breathless. I got to have more of them. So, Jesus, I invite you tonight, right now, to meet us in this place. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.com dot org.